Oh, it's such an honour, Danny. Um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here, and it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work, and you've given it a lot of thought, and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. <laughs> Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about <laughs> and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it, and I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Well, hello, Dave. It's so lovely to see you again. <laughs> Likewise, Danny. <laughs> Apologies to those who may have gotten on at eight o'clock. You know, you can never have a Zoom meeting without a few technical difficulties, right? So we were just doing what every Zoom meeting does, but we're back. We're live on Facebook now. So thank you for being patient if you arrived early. If you arrived late, you're right on time. I hope you've got yourselves a lovely beverage to uh, get you through this conversation, which is going to be a lot of fun and maybe even a, a dessert or something, which I'll be having after this uh, live stream. Ooh. Probably not great to chew while we're talking. Now, I'd like to welcome Dave Warner. Uh, we're going to talk about his new book, Over My Dead Body. So really looking forward to that. And for Oh, got to get yes, the book, book up there, Danny. Us. Yes, it's looking Beautiful. a bit shiny, but it's there. Yep. <laughs> and strategically placed behind me as well. <laughs> <laughs> but for those who don't know me, I'm Danny V. I host a podcast called Words and Nerds Podcast, where I have conversations with authors pretty much like the one you see tonight, but not live stream, just for your ears, where we talk about literature and how books have the power to change the world, which I truly believe. And I, I think if you're joining us, you probably think that way too. So if you had a told me three years ago that this tiny little hobby just to keep me out of trouble would be up to my 200th episode, I would have called you mad. But here we are, just celebrated my 200th episode with Trent Dalton. So very excited to be here tonight. And um, hopefully I can connect with some new listeners um, on the social, on all the social medias and um, iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. But more importantly, Dave, much more importantly, we're here to talk all about you tonight. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and it is a real pleasure to be here on the Fremantle Press Facebook page and chatting with you. I loved your book. And we're going to talk about Over My Dead Body, which you can purchase via the link in the comments below or on uh, the Facebook event page. So before we get going, Dave, I'm going to read a bit of your bio and you can just sit back and look as impressive as your bio is because okay. I was I was impressed. Sit back and relax. <laughs> So Dave Warner, author, musician, screenwriter. His first novel, City of Light, won the Western Australian Premier's Book Award for Fiction and Before It Breaks 2015, the Ned Kelly Award for Best Australian Crime Fiction. If that wasn't impressive enough, your novel Clear to the Horizon features the lead characters from both these novels and your most recent crime novel, River of Salt. David Warner, you first came to prominence, national prominence, with your gold album Mugs Game and your band Dave Warner's From the Suburbs. Is there anything you can't do, Dave? Yes, plenty of things. Just ask my wife and uh, the kids and you know, there's a, a whole litany of things that I haven't done. Well, look, we're not going to talk about those things tonight. Right. We're only going to talk about the golden things. So in 2017, you released your 10th album, where you were named a Western Australian State Living Treasure and you've been inducted into the whammy rock and roll of renown, a living treasure. Is that hard to live up to, Dave? I need to ask. Well, look, who, who's to say whether it's hard to live up to, but it is a bit of a worry, Danny, when you start getting named things like living treasures. It, it <laughs> tends to indicate that your artistic life is nigh, you know, so let's hope not. Let's hope we can keep it at a distance. And oh, I, I love how you, you had a negative it. spin on that. I thought that was such a positive <laughs> thing. No one's ever called me a treasure, so, you know. <laughs> now, currently, before we get started, there's a Fremantle Press crime title promotion for Western Australian crime readers where you can buy a new crime title and receive another backlist title free. How cool is that? You can never have enough books. Just look behind me as evidence of this. <laughs> Now, the new titles are Over My Dead Body by Dave Warner, Death Leaves the Station by Alexander Thorpe, Shore Leave by David Wish Wilson and Doom Creek by Alan Carter. 
And one more thing, Dave, before we get into the exploration, the deep exploration of your book, at the end of this live stream, you are going to announce the winner of your Two Truths, One Lie video. Can you give us a rundown of this, please? Yeah, there was a little competition where I nominated three things about me that uh, two of which were true and one was false. And uh, so people had to divine which was uh, which was the lie. So one is that uh, I have been um, investigated as a suspect in the Claremont serial killer case. Two, that um, in 1978 I supported Alice Cooper at the Entertainment Centre in Perth and that we did so well and got a better review that uh, what happened the uh, the next day was that our lights were very dim and, and our sound wasn't quite as good as the night before because the road crew <laughs> saw to that. And the third one was that I had a pay dispute with uh, my rock and roll agency and to solve that dispute I instructed my road crew to barricade or to wall in pretty much to immure the agents um, uh, until they paid up. So they're the... Um, you know, they're the three possibilities that wow. people had to consider. It's so rock and roll, Dave. I can't believe any of those are true, let alone two of them. <laughs> they're just the ones that we were allowed to, you know, use. So, yeah. So we're living the rock and roll lifestyle tonight, everyone, at home, <laughs> behind the Zoom. <laughs> now, Over My Dead Body, can you start by giving us an elevator pitch for what this book is about? Yep, okay, I guess so. Um, imagine that this was what occurred to me, a what if. Imagine if it's 2020 and Sherlock Holmes is walking the streets of New York City and paired with a female Dr. Watson. Um, crime ensues and the team is back on track, you know, and so that's the idea and then I had to set up how to bring that about. Fantastic idea. And I've got to tell you, before I like to read my novels, I don't want any influence. And so I didn't read the blurb. I didn't read anything about it. I just started reading. I'm like, what's happening? This is fantastic. It was just such a unique and original idea that I was so glad that I just was into it and like, wow, this is crazy. So I love that. And what inspired you to write this story? I mean, it was a screenplay, a screenplay first, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it did. Look, it was about two, just after 2000. And I had a previous um, set of novels, Murder in the Groove, Murder in the Frame, Murder in the Off-Season, which featured a character I'd created, Andrew the Lizard Zerk, who was a rock musician. I thought he should be like Sherlock Holmes, aloof, aesthetic, except he played a Fender Stratocaster instead of a Stradivarius. <laughs> and he was he was paired with a young chauffeur, uh, Fleur. Um, well, young woman chauffeur, not that young. And uh, they had crime adventures together. And I thought, oh, that would be a good idea for a movie or for a TV series, and I started to write the little synopsis for that, and I said, you know, imagine Sherlock Holmes with a female Watson, and I got about that far, and I went, oh, wow, that's a much better idea, and um, so I held that idea for a long time and developed the screenplay early 2000s, and then it, it tried to get some interest in that as a screenplay or a TV series, but it's very hard out of Australia to get high-concept things like that going. I went to Los Angeles a couple of times, and had that amongst my other pictures of things, but um, yeah, nothing seemed to happen. And then uh, around about 2010, 11, I decided, no, I really love this idea. I'm going to make a screenplay and make it work. And I started work on that. And then uh, I got well into it and had, you know, really honed the screenplay. And then my friend said, oh, you know, there's a TV series with a female Dr. Watson. <laughs> so I just bashed my head in the wall and <laughs> fell down in a heap and in despair. Um, but then eventually I thought, no, look, this is a, a different idea and it's really worthwhile exploring. And um, and so I decided to do it anyway. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad you did. And so was it that point that you thought, no, this is a novel? Yeah. And I've done that with a few things because, you know, the good thing about um, writing books, if you're based in Australia, is that your imagination can run wild. You can still have spaceships landing or people, you know, swimming from across Antarctica or whatever you need to do uh, and you don't have to try and make it into a film canvas. <laughs> film and television are a lot harder in Australia, work with a much smaller budget than people in Los Angeles or other places. So, um, yeah, that was, I thought it's going to be a novel and, and that changed quite a lot of, a lot more than what I anticipated actually. 
Now you talked about, obviously, there's a lot of versions and, you know, incarnations of Sherlock Holmes. Now, were you influenced by any of these or did you try not to be influenced by any of these? Because there are many versions out there now, aren't there? There's loads of them. I, I guess I wanted to um, stay fairly true to what I thought the original characters were, or particularly Holmes. Um, but as I was doing the, the book, I and Holmes, you only ever meet through Watson in the books. It's always Watson's point of view. You're never actually allowed into Holmes's own mind. You know, you can only gather what he allows Watson to know. So that was one thing that was a bit different. Um, apart from that, no, it was my own story. There was a um, there was a couple of films that I saw many years ago that I, I thought were really interesting takes on the on the whole thing. Um, a film called They Might Be Giants, which wasn't really about the real homes in Watson at all. But again, you kind of used some really interesting thematics in that. And so um, uh, I did reread all the original Holmeses before I sat down to. Well, I don't know. I might have missed one or two, but I tried to. <laughs> I tried lot. to reread the complete <laughs> Sherlock Holmes before I set about actually writing the story. Mm, uh, uh, it... Well, actually starting the novel, I kind of broke down the the bones of the story. Mm -hmm. And was that important to get his voice really, really, you know, authentic in the in your novel? I think it was. Yeah, there were times that I went through. I was surprised that um, most of the time I was fairly close to it, and then I went through it, and then. We've got a great editor at uh, Fremantle Press, uh, Georgia uh, Richter, and she really helps in loads of things too. And, um, you know, but in the process of this, as lots of writers know, by the time you're going through three or four times, you can, going through your drafts, and then you, I got to a, so the, mainly get the structure, the characters down, and then you get to a point where you go, okay, now is this exactly how Holmes would express it? How would he be influenced mm -hmm. by the 20th century? And you try and make those judgment calls, make it as real as you can. Well, I thought his voice was great. I loved it. And I loved the juxtaposition between his voice being thrown into 2020. And I, thought, <laughs> I did wonder what would that be like? And we will get to that. But your Sherlock Holmes is the real man transported into today's world. And unlike that's unlike a lot of a television remakes remakes, because he's not of our time. I just thought it was just such a crazy and amazing <laughs> idea. But why did you want to explore the original Sherlock Holmes and why did you want to put him in, in the context of our world? I think um, they're things I probably came to later. Initially, it was just the idea grabbed me. That was a great idea, a great what if. What if Sherlock Holmes was around in 2020 with all these things like DNA and mobile phones and there's Watson and you could have a kind of potential romantic intrigue. So that was the first thing. But I think as I started to do it the the really interesting thing and what became quite exciting for me was to explore the unknown humanity of Sherlock Holmes because we you know we don't as I say at, at the outset we don't really know that much and and I think in doing that it's a bit like you know like I'm in my 60s now and the world is ever evolving and really rapidly evolving for people my age we can lose track of it incredibly quickly um you know the the so many cultural uh, shifts and so many technological shifts. And so in a way, I think I'm kind of delving into my own space <laughs> and those of, of people of my generation going, um, well, yeah, imagine if it was 120 years time, but it's bad enough just 20 years or 40 years. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so I think there was a bit of a touchstone there my own world absolutely and for those viewing and right now if you would like to throw a question in just put it in the facebook comments i've got millions of questions but i'd love to hear from you so if you have one too we'll ask dave try and throw him a curveball he's just doing too well <laughs> <laughs> now i loved one of the things i loved about your novel which i never thought about was you know being thrust into 2020 150 120 years later I thought it was really funny how he said, everyone, there's, no one smells like anything. And I thought, <laughs> you know, that's probably true because back, you know, 150 years ago or so, there was sewage in the street and horses and people probably had a very interesting odour at the end of a hot day. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I like how we just noticed that, oh, I'm, I'm happy there's no sewage, but no one smells <laughs> like anything. And I thought, wow, isn't that indicative of our society, you know, how sort of, sanitized we are I guess I found that really interesting yeah well that was something that just came up in the course of as I was transporting myself back and as I said that was one of the real 
fun moments of the novel was when I got into Holmes's head and said, what would it be like 120 years here? What are the things you miss? And um, I was thinking of things like, um, you know, sounds and the sound of the policemen tapping their batons in the, in the fog. They'd go around and tap on the lampposts. And then I thought of smell and I thought, yeah, that really is something that's, that's so different now. And, you know, all those wet markets in the streets of London mm. and horse dung everywhere and, you know, it's, um, uh, it, you know, all the, the a million stoves in London with soup boiling <laughs> on them and coming out of all those chimneys. <laughs> so although, you know, I'm, I'm not missing the sewage smell, I think, you know, those other smells might be quite interesting, you know, the markets and things like that. Maybe we're missing out. Maybe we're too sanitised. Now, Dave, I've got some really interesting questions coming through from, from viewers, not all of them book-related. So ah. we'll get cracking on those. We'll take a little bit of a sidestep, a bit of a tangent. Uh, here's one for you. This is from Claire. If you write a sequel and Watson and Sherlock have a baby, what, what are they going to name it, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, um, yeah, no, that's really too difficult and unfair. Perhaps if it's a it female is, Victoria. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I mean, you know, it takes a long time to name your own child. You have it. I don't expect you to come up with this answer in 30 seconds. Uh, Anne has a question for us because the, the book is set in the States and Anne says, will Sherlock ever come to Australia? I'd love to see him on an aeroplane. Well, who knows? I mean, uh, the world of Sherlock could be boundless, and at the moment it was just enough of a mind blast for me to um, do one book, but I suppose it's quite possible that <laughs> he could. And uh, he has an inquiring mind, and I'm certain that he would he would love to get out into the uh, into the outback and see what's going on there. I'd love to see Sherlock in that <laughs> How good would that be? <laughs> now, Patrick, on the, on the back of that question, Patrick says, was it difficult taking this novel out of Australia and into the suburbs of America? Yeah, it was. Um, and I, the conceit of the novel is obviously like really vast, that Sherlock Holmes can be brought alive after 120 years because he's been lying on ice. But, and so you, you accept that. But apart from that, I wanted the novel to ring quite true. And I hadn't been to New York where this is set for 36 years, I think, in fact, or 26 years. And um, so I tried to make as many inquiries as I could. And I spoke to friends who were there or contacts who were there and said, would this happen and would this happen? And it was really surprising how often people disagreed with one another and said no or yes. <laughs> so uh, I did the best I could. And then in December, the whole family went for a, a uh, an, an exploration and we stayed in Queens where a lot of this takes place where um, Georgette has, uh, Watson has grown up and, uh, and traveled to the various locations where bodies are found and, and things. So um, I did a bit of rec uh, reconnaissance myself and, um, and fortunately most of the stuff, almost all the stuff that I had done the pre investigation in turned out to be okay, but one or two things I had to change a little bit. And a research trip to NYC, I mean, could be worse, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, Stephen, I love Stephen. He's asked you, when will East Frio win another premiership? <laughs> oh, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Stephen, I wish I knew that. Um, are, you, are you on the right live stream, Stephen? But you're hilarious. Yeah, 2022, <laughs> I think, Stephen. There you go. There's yeah. a prediction. You've heard it here. <laughs> and Lisa has a really interesting question. She says, is it really horrible trying to get into the mind of a serial killer and writing the murder scene? So how do you do that? That's a great question, Lisa. Um, yeah, look, it, it can be, but I think we're probably a bit immune to that now because we've seen so many TV things or, you know, those of us who are into thrillers and psychological thrillers have read so many books that it's pretty hard to be horrified what what is really um i do have to say what what is quite confronting was in the case of like my first novel city of light where i set it in perth and three and i was kind of working on the um the bernie serial killings that had happened a few years previous as one of the elements of that and i published the book in october 1995 and then in october in january 1996 the first um sarah spears of the three Claremont serial killer victims disappeared and that's quite unnerving because then people are going oh they've read this book you know because it's all happening around the same place so that is unnerving getting into the mind of the serial killer um I think you know that's that's pretty much like what writers tend to do and what what viewers tend to do they uh, and readers you know you kind of throw yourself in there 
And with that case you were just talking about, how does that shape you as a person and a writer? Um, it, it's interesting. It put Certainly the next lot of books that I did were much lighter and much more kind of cosy. Whether I, I had planned to do some of that anyway because I really like the kind of cosy construct, the Agatha Christie as well. Um, but I think it certainly meant that I wasn't rushing out to do my next hard-boiled, hardcore um, psychological thriller. And I only did Clear to the Horizon, uh, which was 2000, I think it came out in um, 2017 or 18, something like that. But I only decided to do that after the police did come here in Sydney to my house and, and say that a number of people had named me as a suspect in the Claremont serial killer murder case. And so it was like this um, story was chasing me in a way. And so I had avoided it for a long time, but it was such a... It had such deep psychological scars for Perth and for Western Australia, and as my uh, quite a few of my novels have been kind of large, trying to get into that psyche of the whole state of Perth and, and Western Australia, it was a very apt story for me to model something on. But I avoided it for a long time, and eventually I gave up and and gave in and did, you know, um, throw myself into it with uh, Clear to the Horizon, which brought back Snowy Lane from the original book. Was it a cathartic experience for you writing that out? Um, I think any time, you know, any any writing for me is a bit cathartic. And mm. for writers, it doesn't matter whether it's a song or, um, the, the, look, there's a few things that aren't. Sometimes you set out to specifically write uh, a comedy song where you might set out to specifically write a song that would work for a character. But I think uh, in, a, in a little musical or play, because I like writing those things, but I think any time that you're kind of delving into yourself, um, as I was with Holmes or and even with Watson, I was delving into myself, you know, to project the female Dave to Watson, I think there's some sort of catharsis goes on anyway. Mm, it's a great thing about art, isn't it? It's cathartic when you're creating it and cathartic when you're engaging with it. Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, Georgia has a great question. She is asking, she wants to know what happened to the story or how it changed or adapted when it went from the screenplay to the novel. Was there any, were there any big changes that were made? Yeah, there was, there was a lot. Um, initially, I thought with the screenplay, um, you could do it, you could play with it. We were quite used to looking at those wide concept, big conceit screenplays like Twins with Arnie Schwarzenegger or whatever. You know, there's, you can have humour and you can have, you, but you can still have some drama in it. Or speaking of Arnie, something like, um, was it uh, Kindergarten Cop or whatever, you know, so there's, you can play with those elements and they're two-dimensional because you're always looking at it here. So you're looking at fun scenes and and fun things and, and inventive dialogue. But when you get into the novel and you realise you're spending most of the time in someone's head, then you have to go, well, First big question is whose point of view is it? Is it going to be like the original Holmes? Am I just going to do everything from Watson's point of view? Um, and for a long time, I thought that I might do everything from Watson's point of view, but but then I felt I was just missing out on too much not getting into Sherlock's head. And so in the end, I worked around the idea that uh, Watson really carries the story for the first two thirds, and then you get a little bit of Holmes, and then it's a kind of a you know, they they tag team for the rest of it. So that, that was the first thing. And I think the next big thing was tone because whereas you can do that fun um, stuff with film, I think it's a lot harder with novels and with especially if you're going to use a Sherlock Holmes to put it into a, a novel, I felt it needed to be darker and to have a, it still be a real crime thriller. And mm. so the balance was I wanted to keep the humour and the comedy of, of Holmes, of all those fun things of, of Holmes um, jumping into a handsome cabin and, and galloping, you know, <laughs> to the rescue, uh, which happens at one point in the in the story. But I also wanted to balance that against, um, you know, how would this stand up to a Silence of the Lambs or how would it stand up to a bone collector or something? You know, you wanted that, still wanted that scary kind of stuff that you get in modern day psychological thrillers. So that, they were the tone and point of view were the two big things. He was a hard man to live up to. I mean, not only did he have the 19th century manners, but then, you know, he was thrust into the new world with brains and great fashion sense. I mean, you know, it's a hard act to follow, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> 
Donna asks, Dave, will there ever be another novel set in Western Australia? Oh, yeah, I'm working on one at the moment. So um, Detective Dan Clement, who made his debut in Before It Breaks and who teamed up with Snowy Lane in um, Clear to the Horizon, he's back uh, for this one. Um, I think it's. I think my working title is After the Flood, but uh, Fantastic. That, could, that could easily change. Um, Look forward to that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm in the process of doing that at the moment. And going back to the film idea just quickly, did you have an idea who you would ideally love to play your Sherlock and your Georgette Watson? I probably did at the time, but, I've, you know, I've since... Um, <laughs> but now that you raise it, uh, that would be good. Well, I think you'd, you know, it was a Daniel Craig could possibly... Or maybe he Ooh. hasn't quite got the smoothness for it. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of those great Aussie actresses could, uh, could easily do a... Uh, a young actress could easily do a um, a Watson though, so uh, yeah, bring them on. <laughs> <laughs> so a bit of Bond, a bit of James Bond into Sherlock Holmes. I love that. <laughs> now Phil says, Dave, would you ever do a novel with Mugs game characters in it? Derek, Sandra, and Zongo. Well, funnily enough, Phil, I can't say that I would do a novel. However, I was very fortunate to get a grant from. Uh, the WA uh, Culture and Arts earlier in the year. And I was working on the idea of a musical, which is In Search of the Suburban Boy. And it does just that. Derek, Sandra and Zongo. Uh, I finished the first draft now. And so it's now at the stage where I've got to see if somebody's interested in doing it to work on further drafts. But the idea is that they have, the very, very um, brief idea is that they've learned that Dave Warner is despairing. No one's listening to my music. I'm going to retire. And Zongo you're, na- think- you're a national treasure. <laughs> yeah, Zongo thinks that's great because he can spend all his time playing um, Space Invaders because he's only, they're still stuck in the 70s. And then they realise, oh, if I stop, they stop. They cease to exist. So the characters have got to come and try and find me. So they also find themselves in the modern world. And, and for 1970s characters, that's a big jump into 2020. So stay tuned for that one. Fantastic. And, Chloe, I love this question so much. Uh, if you could bring back anyone to life besides Sherlock Holmes, because, you know, you did that, um, who would it be? Such a great <laughs> question. Who would you bring back to life? Oh, that's really hard, isn't it? it is. I don't know. Liberace. Liberace, <laughs> yeah. Good choice. Good choice. I'm going to bring back Oscar Wilde so we can have a party with Liberace, <laughs> Oscar Wilde. Chloe, you can come because you thought of the question. It'd be great. <laughs> well, those two would get on well, I'm sure. <laughs> I think so. I think so. It'd be some great music, great literature. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, what a party. I'm there for it. <laughs> And Lisa says, Dave, if there was a murder set in a 1980s band tour, who would be the murderer, the roadie, the drummer, or the bass player, or the guitarist? Have to be the ah. drummer. Always the drummer, isn't it? Well, I think they <laughs> should, I think they need to read Murder in the Groove, which was the, I'm a, a Lizard Zerk novel, because that's sort of 1980s and there's a murder <laughs> happens there, and I don't want to give it away. So go and find a copy somewhere this. of Murder in the Groove. And, Fantastic. Uh, I think the roadie's too obvious. So. Yeah, but remember the butler did it, so you don't want to, you know. And the guitarist, you know, they're too busy trying to get attention. I'm going to go for the drummer. Maybe the bass player, they'd be quiet in the band usually. Yeah, that'd be the one one you least suspect. Yeah, (laughs) maybe it's them. Great question, Lisa. Lisa, who do you think it would be? (laughs) Tell us who you think it would be. Fantastic questions, guys. I've really enjoyed that. And you've made my job super easy by giving me all the questions. So thank you. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit more about research. I mean, we talked about research when you went to NYC to look at the setting, but there's a little bit of sci-fi in there, a little bit of science in there. So did you do much scientific research for your Dr. Georgette Watson? Yeah, look, not a, not a huge, huge amount because it would involve far more than um, <laughs> I, I'm capable of to kind of understand some of that. But I did do some. I looked at cryonics, which is the, um, which I didn't know much about at all, uh, study of sub-freezing gases and, and this thing, and we tend to, and cryogenics, we tend to say, which is like Walt Disney on ice. That was my thinking as a layman, Walt Disney on ice. <laughs> but um, what was kind of interesting in the in the research was that when I was thinking about how did Holmes, I had various ideas, Holmes, comes alive how do you do that and and I thought it was just too good an opportunity to pass up that he had plunged off the Reichenbach Falls in the original Conan Doyle stories he 
he was dead. And then there was such an outcry from the public that he was brought back to life. And I thought, well, what if he is, what if he actually did, you know, if they were real and he did freeze and then Watson kept him alive in this under the lake at sub-freezing temperatures? Because, you know, we get those woolly mammoths out, right? Mm, And so in looking at that, I did find that there are people can be, not for 100 years, but certainly can appear dead for hours and not necessarily be dead. Um, So I thought, well, that's kind of, if if you can think that it's possible and not impossible, that's your first step to believing it. And... um, and at that time, that Victorian era was when Lavoisier was doing gases. So when you went into it, it was right in the middle of the time when all of those things were starting to um, uh, explode in, in uh, the, the Victorian scientist's mind. And you had time travel because that was one of the things that, of course, I think um, Holmes assumes that he's come back in uh, the time machine. That's what he's doing in New York in 2020. He doesn't realise that he's actually been dead for 100 years. So um, a little bit of research there. But uh, as I said, I was kind of more interested, I guess, in the the practical research of, you know, how long would it take you to get from Queens to the Bronx? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And look, if it does have that bit of a sci-fi element, I, I totally bought it. And, you know, you're talking about the science of the day, you know, back 150 years ago. I mean, that's how Frankenstein came about too. Yeah. When Mary Shelley was writing that, she, you know, was looking at what was happening and how they were trying to bring people back from the dead with using electronic, you know, I'm going to yeah, say exactly. really badly, but, you know, <laughs> using electricity to try and try and get them back to life. So it's interesting how that started way back then, isn't it? Yeah, Very it convenient is. for your novel. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> there are there are a little bit of Frankenstein parallels in the novel too, I thought. Oh, well, there's definitely some gothic stuff mm. in it, and I like that. And, I look, I was, I was enjoying myself because, um, and I, I did think it was fun to have a little bit of gothic stuff, particularly early where, Georgette has to go to um, Switzerland to find this uh, missing body, if you like, that could be there, may not be there, but she thinks it might be there after all this time, 100 years. And so, yeah, I deliberately tried to work on that and and have a bit of fun with that. Gothic literature, I just love it. It's timeless. It's fantastic. And Lisa's gotten back to us and said, definitely the bass guitarist. So apologies (laughs) to any bass guitarist watching. My dad's a bass guitarist, so I don't know what that says. (laughs) My mum's husband is one too, so I am surrounded by serial killers apparently. (laughs) Um, And Anne has a question. Dave, you mentioned in a post um, about this book has a bit of humour in it, as in espresso. Can you explain this? Oh, um, what was she said? This book has a bit of humour. Yes. It does. Yeah. um, Espresso is a previous novel of mine, which is written for those who would know it. I tried to write something in kind of like an Elmore Leonard style which, um, or you might have seen the film Get Shorty, people, or Out of Sight, that uh, with a lot of characters, a lot of different character strands coming together, but um, kind of a lot of humour along the way. And uh, so this is this has got some humour in it, but this is a lot darker than what um, Espresso is because, as I mentioned earlier, for those who were listening at that point, that um, I felt that tonally because it was a, you still needed the psychological thriller and I think a Sherlock Holmes thing is still needed it to be a bit scary if you want in some <laughs> way and uh but it does have humor I mean yeah Holmes is such a great character to have humor with and mm. when you read the books he has got a sense of humor in his uh even in the in the Conan Doyle things is a, a bit yeah. of humor he's, he's not always lying back on the on the couch looking for the seven percent solution <laughs> no, i always find sherlock has that kind of really dry intelligent sort of sense of humor mm. and then throw him into the new world and he like you know this very intelligent man gets thrown an ipad and he's like well, what do i do with this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is this help me <laughs> it is it is very funny and he's also very resourceful so when he goes into 2020 and he's obviously got no money and no one knows who he is he's very resourceful and just observes and finds his way and I just thought that is so Sherlock I loved it well that was the great thing about that that character and I uh, you know you you could have written this novel entirely from the Sherlock point of view and spent a lot of time in how he um adapts to 2020 after being out of the world for 100 years but I thought one of the great things is that we just accept that Sherlock Holmes is a genius that he would adapt but it wouldn't take him more than you know, five or ten minutes to understand aeroplanes. He's he's along there with H.G. <laughs> Wells and all these people. Yeah, he understands aeroplanes and ships and cars. So, but what really fascinates him is um, milk in a carton. 
instead mm. of a, in a in a milk bottle. And and as you say, his ability that to notice that human nature hasn't changed all that much. So the shell game is still going on in the streets of New York, and of course he's very adept at this. Um, and uh, it just gives you loads of fun. I think my, one of my favourite lines was where Juliet, who's very straight laced tells him to stop smoking and he goes, I've been smoking for 166 years. It hasn't done me any harm. I'm fine. Oh, and then he starts talking about some illicit drugs that he might just have available because 100 years ago that was fine. And she's like, no, do this anymore. So, yeah, plenty of humour in that. And it was very interesting having him thrown into 2020. But I did love Georgette and I did want to spend some time with her and when we talk a lot about Sherlock, but it was so you know, so great to have a woman who was intelligent, who was his equal, um, you know, she was accomplished in her own right. And it was lovely to have her juxtaposed with Sherlock. Yeah, look, at, uh, um, hopefully I'm glad you like it. You felt like that, Danny, because it really is Georgette's novel, you know, really she mm-hmm. she is driving the novel. And um, uh, even though, you know, Holmes faces this amazing uh, situation. It, it's really Georgette's life story that we're we're following, and where she fits into the world, and how she relates to people, and the vulnerabilities that that she has. And um, and so yeah, she's she's every every bit uh, Sherlock's equal in. Uh, and and I think it's it's really. I, I did like the fact that he responds to that too, mm-hmm. and that's why he likes yeah. it. That she is. Every bit is, is equal. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, Steve has come back, thankfully not with a sport question because I can't <laughs> answer. I really can't answer them. Um, Stephen says, did you check out much in relation to the Golden State Killer case and the importance of DNA? Um, no, I didn't. I mean, I have, uh, I have seen the documentaries on the, on the Golden State um, Killer, and I've read, uh, read a fair bit about you know DNA stuff, uh, but I think the salient point for Holmes is he's going. Imagine if I'd have had this. Imagine if I'd have had DNA at the time mm. of Jack the Ripper. You know, mm. um, Holmes is going. There, there wouldn't be a criminal in in all of the Commonwealth who'd be safe from him. In all of the Empire who'd be safe from Holmes, which is probably true. He would have nailed them all. I think. And was that a challenge for crime writers in 2020, trying to write a crime when there's CCTV and there's mobile phones and there's DNA? It's like, how do you get away with murder these days? <laughs> yeah, it's really true. I, I much prefer doing the ones in the 60s and 70s that I did because <laughs> you don't have to bother about so much of that stuff. And there's always something that you forget and you're reading somebody else's novel. You go, oh, God, I should have put that in. Or <laughs> is there still time? Thanks, technology is ruining crime fiction. <laughs> Now, Claire, Claire has a very interesting question. I'm a bit frightened of Claire. Claire says, did you think about Sherlock's last meal before being frozen and what happened to his digestive system when you brought him back to life? She's asking for a friend, but I don't believe her. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm not sure what uh, his last meal was. He, he wasn't particularly hungry at the time. What was but, popular back then? Uh, um, well, bangers and, and mash. Bangers perhaps. and mash? Yes. Um, but, uh, Look, I'm sure whatever it is, Georgette Watson would have sorted through all of that. So <laughs> it's no problem. And Lisa has a hamster question. I'm glad we're having a hamster question because uh, they, they were pretty important. But have you ever had any in your household? She loves how you named them. But did you ever, uh, did you have to do any research on hamsters? Did you go to a pet shop? Did you ever own any? I've never owned a hamster. I mean, I suppose we say guinea pigs kind of mm. similar sort of things in Australia and but our family never even had had guinea pigs we had lots of other things but I did do a little bit of research and I was um I was interested to find that there are different strands and breeds that have different things also that they're nocturnal and so and that they like particular environments so I did read on that and try to have um Georgette create in her lab an environment that is the kind of thing that you might have for hamsters that's very interesting I didn't know that about hamsters. I've learned something today, Dave. Yeah, and, and some hamsters, apparently, some lots, um, you can't put them together because they will fight. And but uh, but there is this other, you know, um, breed that don't. And so she has the lot that don't fight. And is that with guinea pigs too? Are they nocturnal? Because then how do you? I don't know. How do you own them? If anyone knows, because I'm wondering <laughs> if you have them as a pet. Like they're up all night and they're sleeping all day. I'm just wondering. I'm sure they're lovely pets, but you wouldn't get to spend much. 
you know, bonding time with them, right? Yeah, no, I don't know. I only remember guinea pigs sort of running around in the daytime because I was probably too young in those days to get up at night to check them out. But that might have just been because the poor guinea pigs weren't given the right conditions to, you know, to be able to I'm hang out. In the probably completely wrong here. So apologies to guinea pig, you yeah. know, people who know stuff about guinea pigs, not me. <laughs> Now, there's definitely, besides we've got the murders and we've got, um, you know, the, the science and the sci-fi, but there's also a little bit of romantic tension between our lovely Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes. Now, I was going to ask you, how do you write romance between characters who have such a generational age gap? Now, they're around about the same age from, you know, when he's unfrozen to when, you know, she's alive, so... That's not an issue. But do you think it's their humanity that brings them together? And do you think that that's what keeps us bonded? So it doesn't really matter the time period that we're born in. Our, you know, humanness connects us. Yeah, totally. Absolutely, Danny. I think it is. It's the humanity, the humanity of Holmes and Watson. And um, and that, that's something that I kind of firmly do believe, that if somebody, if, if this could actually be done, you could resurrect somebody from 100 years ago and, and uh, they could be walking around here that, yeah, they're going to relate on those on that period. I don't I think fundamentally as as humans, we can acknowledge that. And um, that's kind of what's cute about it. Uh, and I, I think there's been a few. There's certainly been films in that. There was one that uh, where Hugh Jackman played. Uh, I can't think of the name of it offhand. Leopold, was it? And, and um, Meg Ryan or somebody played. And that was mm -hmm. um, an, an interesting one with. Um, set in New York again, another one of those films where someone could come back. You could, you could certainly have that. But, of course, the good thing that when you've got that romance is you also, when there's 100 years different, you also have the threat that at any time there mm. could be a problem um, arising in, in that that's not of their making. There could be a, It gives you a great chance for external threats as well. So mm. uh, I like that about the story. Yeah, and it was a nice um, juxtaposition, I thought, a nice thread that you had all the the murder and, you know, all that kind of creepy stuff, but then you had this nice sort of, no, I wouldn't call it a love story, but this hint at something romantic, and it was nice. It was nice to come back to and fro to, you know, the creepy to the <laughs> humanness and the love. It was a nice juxtaposition. Now, I had this question too, Georgia. I wanted to ask, you're, you know, a musician and a writer amongst many other things, but... Do you find that, you know, they're both creative art forms? Does one sort of inform the other? Do they overlap? They, they do sometimes, yeah. Um, I mean, I think all these things do a little bit, like the screenwriting and, and music, all a little bit, you know, but it's not it's not a perfect match. But, for example, in my previous novel, um, River of Salt, which was set in 1961 and 63, most of it in 1963, and I had... Um, my main character, Blake, who'd come out from America, was right into surf, that period of surf guitar music when they're, and that really early croony sort of early 60s um, uh, Frankie Valley, Frankie Avalon type of sound. And as I was writing a scene in, in that novel, I got to a point where Blake's playing the guitar as he's rehearsing with his band and he's looking at his bar manager, Doreen, and there's similar kind of erst between them as between Holmes and Watson. But Blake doesn't feel he's worthy of her, but he's written this song that is kind of for her. And and to write that scene properly, I actually could hear the song in my head. So I worked out the melody of the song and the words and and put that into the scene. And then stupidly, after the book had gone off to um, the printers, I suddenly went, oh, I should have actually recorded that song um, <laughs> to be, and I could have put go to this page now. But I did record it with my friend Martin Cilia, who writes, who's a great surf guitarist. And uh, and we did put it out. And so if anybody's ever reading River of Salt, when they get to page 33, they can go onto YouTube and they can find that song and listen to it. So that's a case of it, one directly informing the other. Um, and as um, I can't remember who asked the question before, but about uh, Derek and Sandra. So there's, that's another case where, you know, I, I like that kind of cross-pollinisation of theatre and music and whatever else might come on. That's fantastic. I love that. I really like that. And I'm going to YouTube straight after this interview and I'm going to go check it out. 
I think we all will be. <laughs> no good can come from this, it's called, Danny. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I'm there. I'm there for it. Now, Donna, she has a process question for you, and I'd like to know as well as Donna's question whether you plot or whether you're a bit of a pantser, but she also wants to ask what kind of devices do you use when you're gathering ideas for novels? Do you use notepads or voice recorders or butcher's paper or Post-it notes or Scrivener? So what is your process like and are you a plotter or a planner? Um. I'm a mild plotter. So for me, the big thing is that the big idea, the, it's, it's that what if moment or in one case in Expresso, it was just a scene that I saw and the whole thing developed out of that. So that's where the thing starts. And then at some point I will sit down and generally just with pen and paper, I will sketch out um, some ideas, some really rough ideas as they come. And then I'll trans, then, then I'll go into the next mode, which is I'll put those rough ideas, and it might only be 10 beats, it might not even be that, onto the computer, onto a you know, Word document. And I'll just try and expand those a little bit. Um, and then I'll start writing. And as I get through, and I generally start, I, I, I like to know where I'm going to finish. So I'll know the end. So I'll kind of know the, the beginning, middle and end of the story roughly. And, uh, and then I'll work towards that. But things will change, you know, things will get rearranged mm. and changed uh, as you go along. And, and often the ending in particular, I might change that. I think River of Salt, I changed it four times as to who was going to um, be exposed as the villain in the end of that. Um, uh, and other ones, the, the very first one that I did, City of Light, I just started at page one. I had no idea of plotting or planning. <laughs> it took me about four years to finish it because I was touring with the band as well. And that's that's great too. It's very organic, but it's very mm. time consuming because mm. uh, every time you go back, every, I found that if I took a break for two, three weeks, uh, and went back to my story, whatever I'd been reading or listening to in the in the intervening mm. time was how I started to write the next slot. You know, so um, so and nowadays I, a, a bit of a, a sketch, bit of a bone plan. Mm-hmm. And I imagine if you do just pants the whole novel, that the editing process would be much harder. We can kind of self-edit as you go, mm-hmm. uh, which is what makes it long. So, And you might have to redo whole sections. So I always try and self-edit so poor Georgia isn't, you know, tearing her hair out too, <laughs> too much. And, you know, most of us probably do that. But but it's great to have an editor at the point where you go, um, yeah, look, this is it. And, and generally if they come back with the same areas that you think are a bit wonky, then that's good. You know, you go, okay, I've got to figure a way out of that. You know, if they come back with areas that you think are great, it's not so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had that conversation the other day that whenever in any creative space you think you're nailing it, you're definitely not. (laughs) If you've got self-doubt, you're probably on the right path. (laughs) Creative (laughs) endeavours. Now, Patrick has a question. He says, any forecast on the suburbs tour that was postponed in the middle of the pandemic that could form a segue into another novel? Ah, well, um, no, I think I know who this Patrick is too. And uh, ha- he had a birthday about two days ago. So happy, happy birthday, birthday, Patrick. Yeah. Um, yeah, no plans at the moment. It, w- it was a very difficult thing because I have got people in four different states or three different states and six different people trying to pull them together. And we just had taken about six months to get the whole thing ready to go. And then COVID came. And so it may never happen, but, uh, you, d- you know, we'll, we'll just watch this space it might happen it's um but it's not an easy it's not an easy fix unfortunately that one yeah unfortunately not now what draws you to crime writing dave oh look i think initially it was um that i felt that i might be okay at it i read a whole lot of agatha christie stories and then i did some um, a murder weekend with my friend uh dave sampati and i wrote the script of it and i realized that i could actually plot so i thought okay well at least i can I can plot that's a starting point. And so when I wanted to write a book and I'd always wanted to write a book, um, I thought that's an area that I might be able to do. But I I really enjoy it. And the older I've got, I, I tend to almost only read crime novels now or go back and read a few literary books that I really enjoyed and have enjoyed. So I tend to reread the same mm-hmm. literary masterpieces and then just read new crime all the time. And I like it because it's exciting. It's um, uh, it does delve into our humanity. Sometimes it can be a bit formulaic, and there's so much now, so much crime on TV, crime fiction. Uh, it can be hard to try and find a 
new space or something. But, um, you know, when you find the authors that, that you like, you can, you know, you can always go back to their ones too and reread those. Absolutely. Now, speaking about those literary masterpieces that you reread, what are they? I need to know. Okay. Um, well, Moby Dick, I, mm. uh, I, you know, I love uh, that. Um, uh, the Tin Drum, I've you know, read several times. Um, Gravity's Rainbow and V, I keep trying to, you know, I read that and still only half get it. But, you know, I think I've, <laughs> I think I've read Gravity's Rainbow about five times and, you know, <laughs> Keep forgetting what I or I actually um, <laughs> thought I understood the previous time before. Uh, so they're, they're three that you know, for example, and there might be other things that pop up, you know, mm. out of my head. I can't tell you offhand. I'd love to hear viewers as well. I always, I'm always very interested in you know when you talk about literature from the past, what people read. I mean, I love the picture of Dorian Gray, which I mentioned Oscar Wilde before, mm. and I love all those gothic authors, you know, Poe and um, yeah. And, you know, I even like Chaucer going back <laughs> that far. I yeah. think that was very bawdy and very fun. So I'd be interested to see what other people um, like to or, or, you know, keep going back to. Because you're right, some of those classic pieces of literature, you go back and you find something new in them all the time. Yeah, yeah, they are. You just think, oh, it's fabulous. And um, and that's just that picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, that, I remember seeing that movie as a kid and it was so scary. Oh, <laughs> but fabulous and that's that's something yeah. that I reread and I'm like oh yes like it's so relevant to 2020 or I've seen something in a different light so I always yeah. talk about Oscar Wilde I'm sorry now crime fiction what crime fiction are you reading you said you read lots of new stuff what have you been reading recently uh at the moment I'm on um Louise Penny I did a uh a, a WA um you know book week thing um Festival of Perth thing a couple of years ago and started to read her book, so I'm reading one of hers at the moment. Um, I've read a few other authors that I've um, had, you know, just try them out, and so nothing outstanding there. But if I ever see uh, an Arthur Andreasen that I haven't read or Henning Mankell, I've read them all, but, um, you know, I'll always try and if I see one of those, I'll pick it up. But, um, yeah, varies a bit. I'm... I'm flicking between the psychological thrillers and the cosies at the mm, moment. Yeah, I love a good psychological thriller. Now, I always love to ask this question. I have this as the last question on my podcast, and I want to ask you, Dave, why do you write? Um, I just enjoy it. You know, it's it's fun. I always loved reading as a kid. I always wanted to write stories from when I was about 12 at least. And, um, and it's probably the most... It's, probably still the most fun that I have except for those moments when you're trying to crack things like oh how what what distance would the uh, mobile phone signal travel you know um, and all that stuff. those things that ruin your plot <laughs> yeah when, when you're when you're into the humanity of the characters and the fun um, or when characters are discovering something uh, those moments are real gems so yeah it's just because it's fun that that's all Great. And look, we'll just quickly go to Wendy. I know we've got to wind this up, but Wendy has a great question. And she's asked, have you ever abandoned a manuscript? And if so, why? And will you ever go back to it? Uh, yeah, look, I've, I've a couple of my literary things, I haven't abandoned them. I've done them and then everyone said they stink. And uh, so I've, you know, uh, I've, I've gone back and reworked them. There's a, a couple of um, stories, uh, film scripts that I've kind of abandoned halfway through, <clears throat> primarily only because, um, and I may go back to them, but it's generally because I think it's a great idea, but it's I feel it's going to be not time-wise not worthwhile trying to thread my way through it. I'm better off to go off with another idea that's just a little bit more pristine. Um, so that would be why. It's kind of a, I don't know whether I can just keep myself on the oar for long enough to get to the far shore. And what about when you're writing a manuscript but then all of a sudden you're like, oh, what about this idea? Do you feel like gravitating to the new one or do you often think how can I draw that new idea into my current manuscript? Because that's always a bit of a distraction, isn't it, when you're working on something like, oh, what about that? What about that new shiny idea? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, I'll probably make a little note of the new shiny idea <laughs> and then as soon as I get some time I'll go to it. I, I, I find it quite easy to work on two or three things at, at once, depending on what stage you're at with the with the story. I mean, there are mm. there are when you're right into the editing process and stuff, you know, you just want to be on that particular one. But in the early days, 
I think I've got about three stories going at the moment in various mm-hmm. stages. You know, my, the new novel's probably kind of about 30% done but pretty much worked out. Um, and then a couple of other ones are at much more um, lower levels. They're at the bones level. But I think if it's a great idea, always throw it in. And, and I tend to not bring it in because... Um, why, why waste another great idea if it's, you know, strong enough by itself? <laughs> yeah, that's it, that's it. But sometimes there's that impatience, isn't it? Like, oh, maybe I can do something with that now. But then <laughs> yeah. you'd, you'd never finish anything, right? <laughs> now, Michelle has a great question. Michelle says, who is your favourite Agatha Christie character? Oh, well, oh, look, you know, my favourite Agatha Christie character is, is Poirot, I suppose, you know, like, I mean, I, I like Miss Marple, um, but uh, Poirot was is my favourite. And uh, in terms of, I'm trying to think through the things if there are any baddies, but I uh, <laughs> were my favourites. But <laughs> yeah, um, I like lots of Agatha books, though. You know, I think there's mm. eight, eight or ten, you know, in my all-time faves. Fantastic. And, Georgia, we're getting lots of questions now. People are winding up, so they're getting all their questions in, which is great. Uh, Georgia says, the best crime novel you've read this year? Oh, oh, darn. Um, Georgia. Uh, no, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> no. Uh, best crime novel I've read this year. It's probably not the one I'm, I was going to say whatever. The, I read a Joe Nesbo one, that, um, but I don't know if it was the best one. It was one of the earliest, early ones. No, I might. No, I'm going to have to hold on that. Sorry. I can't, I, I, I but can't it changes. You, it changes, give, doesn't it? Yeah, can't give you a definitive on that. Mm. Um, but... Uh, Best action thriller that I've read this year is from a friend of mine, another Aussie author, um, which was there somewhere. That's called Okinawa, um, Future War. And he also wrote Bering Strait, and he goes under the name of F.X. Holden. So, uh, and that's, here we are. Um, For people who like things like Tom Clancy and stuff, that's great. Great. If people are looking for um, a bit of crime, look no further than Fremantle Press because I've got... I've got some ripper stable mates there, Alan Carter, David Wish Wilson, and I haven't read um, Death Leaves the Station yet, but I've got to get that. Um, Fremantle Press might send me a copy, you never know. Um, <laughs> I think but, it's in the post. <laughs> <laughs> but you're probably speaking to uh, David Wish Wilson and Alan Carter soon, Danny, if not, or maybe one of them you might be, and um, and they've got great novels. So uh, I can't remember whether, whether Shore Leave was the last one that I read of David's. Um, that's a ripper. Uh, oh, so many great things. Marlborough Man of Alan Carter going that bit. Fantastic. Anyway. Fantastic. Well, that's wonderful. Now, before we end this, Dave, you need to tell us what was true and what was false in your Two Truths, One Lie video. Drum roll. And uh, what was false, as some people kind of did get, some people went to the, to the extreme of Googling when Alice Cooper <laughs> toured Australia and said it was 1977, not 1978, and they're That's correct. That's commitment. That's commitment. They're correct. I lied about Alice Cooper. It was actually ELO who, um, who we upstaged, and we got a better review in the paper than ELO, and so the next time they came and, cut down our lights severely and uh, and our sound. But not, not necessarily the band, just the, you know, road crew and people. And the winner is Marianne Vincent. She's the Facebook winner. Marianne, well done. And there was also an Instagram winner, Danny. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is Ellie. Ellie, novel idea. Ellie, you're the winner of the Instagram um, contest. And uh, this is how we, we interpreted she did a bunch of emojis, right? Yeah. And apparently we interpreted it as this, and I'll read it out for you. A guitar player drinks heavily while wearing bunny suits before being gagged and shot in the back while running away with a bag of money through a cemetery. All this through emojis. Wounded, he throws a bomb, hops on a plane and visits the Statue of Liberty. Liberty. After a stop off in Tokyo, police catch him and he goes quietly. <laughs> so, Dave, your next novel, can you please write it in emojis for us? That'd be great. <laughs> Save a lot of time. Absolutely. I don't know. I wouldn't save a lot of time reading it. No. <laughs> I'd be very confused. Like cuneiform or something. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's it. <laughs> you definitely get many, many people with different interpretations, <laughs> that's for sure. Now, of course, you can purchase the book from selected stores in WA and you get a free copy from um, of a Fremantle Press crime title, so that's a pretty awesome deal. 
And for the next conversation uh, happening in two weeks with Fremantle Press, you can join us with Dave Wish Wilson and Fiona Hardy of Readings Book in Melbourne on Wednesday, 4th of November at 5pm in WA or 8pm if you're in Sydney or Melbourne. And they'll be talking about Shore Leave and that's a gritty and insightful story of greed, family and revenge. So that's pretty exciting. And I've just had such a wonderful time here with you, Dave, and with all our, I love it when viewers asking questions because they're really engaging in the conversation. So I've had just such a lovely chat with you. Um, and of course, Over My Dead Body is available for purchasing the link as well. And um, if you like this conversation, there's more where that came from, 200 episodes on Words and Nerds podcast. <laughs> That'll keep your weekend busy. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, Dave. It was such a wonderful oh, thank you, chat. Thank you, Dave. Thank That's you to terrific. our viewers for throwing in those brilliant questions. Uh, often they threw you some curveballs, Dave, which I really enjoyed. From here, from where I'm sitting, I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good on you, they did, yes. When people ask you what's your favourite or your best, you go, oh, hang on, I haven't got any of my devices on. I'm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm I've been told to mute everything. <laughs> But, yeah, a great, creepy, unique take on crime fiction, exploring one of the most famous crime solvers in the world. But you managed to put this unique twist on it that, you know, I'd never seen before. So that's a great feat, I reckon. Oh, thanks, Danny. Yeah. And thanks, Fremantle Press, for having us. We had a great time and we hope you all did too. So happy reading and stay safe wherever you are. Bye-bye, Katie.